Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, but I'd like to read the context of verses 15 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's look to the Lord together. O oh Lord, we do pray that you'll give us wisdom and insight into your word, that we may glorify you in our meditations now. May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We trust in the Lord to open his word to us. It is from him, and then he guides us in our understanding of it. And this is a text with uh, quite a bit of glory in it. Uh, it is uh, a long text where Paul it apparently, quite innocently, says, I've been praying for you. Uh, he, could, he could have said something rather common. I've been praying for you night and day. And, you know, I, I, when I am traveling, I think of you often. And I just think of so many nice things for you. I hope this for you and I hope that for you. Kind of common things. Uh, and yet, it's interesting, that, isn't it, that he prays that they will have insight into things that he then teaches them. <laughs> it's sort of like a self-fulfilling prayer. Oh Lord, I hope they will understand that Jesus is both human and divine, that he is born of, the, of Mary, and I hope they will understand, you know, <laughs> go through all these doctrines that, uh, you know, he wants them, he's going to pray that they'll understand by teaching on it uh, at the same time. And in a sense, that's what he's doing. Uh, but he can't contain himself. He's a apostle, he's a teacher. Uh, he says that elsewhere, it's actually in First Timothy 2, uh, he's a teacher of the Gentiles, called by Christ to that end. And here he does teach us. But he does a focus on the fact that he wants us to be enlightened. He wants the eyes of our hearts to have light, verse 18. And last week I talked about how dark it was in Paul's world, uh, outside of the cities in particular, where even there you probably had just some torches, uh, but no real serious lights uh, illuminating those cities. Um, and in the countryside, it was just dark. If there's overcast or no uh, stars out, it's or, or moon, it's just really, really dark. Um, I've experienced that at sea, when, when you're in the middle of the ocean and the, uh, everything's blacked out. Uh, it, I, I'd never experienced anything like it. 
Um, it's so dark you can feel the darkness, as it were. It's just, it's just dark. <laughs> it's not like you keep sitting there thinking, well, maybe my eyes will adjust. There's nothing to adjust to. It's just dark. <laughs> um, and I'm reminded of this uh, king of Scotland by the name of Alexander III. Uh, this is uh, a king who was impulsive. Uh, he would not listen to his advisors who, after a, a big feast, had decided he was going to go someplace else. I think he was going home uh, horseback, and he was uh, uh, pretty commonly would ride at night uh, on horseback. And of course, if there's a moon out, it's fine, but there was no moon on this day. And he rode over a cliff. Twelve eighty six, Alexander the Third. It was dark. <laughs> this is the world. This is a dark world. And Paul knows that our hearts need illuminating in a dark world. Even we who receive the light of the gospel still need continued guidance from the light of the world through the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what Paul is praying for. And notice how the uh, a spirit of wisdom and revelation which will illumine the eyes of our heart. So the eyes of our heart have, have light. We can perceive. We can understand what it is that God has done for us in Christ. This is the focus of his attention. Um, that, that we will understand what we have in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't pray, I hope the eyes of your heart will be illumined to these three practical steps I'm going to give you. When you get up in the morning, be sure to drink your orange juice. When uh, second thing you do, have your quiet time. Third thing, do this, do that. He could have laid out steps for us, which are all good things. These were all good practical measures we can participate in. You read the book of uh, Proverbs, you're going to get a lot of practical advice on how to live your life wisely before the Lord. And Paul could focus on that. But the center of our attention to make those practical things of any value is Christ. That's whom we fix our attention on. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, and he has really almost snuck up on that by saying, well, I want you to know about verse uh, 18, the hope to which you've been called. These are parallel things. I mentioned that last time. He actually lays these out as parallel. There's repetition of the same word at the beginning of each one of these. What, what, what. Three times you get what, what, what. I want you to know what is uh, the hope to which he has called you. And what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance or glorious wealth of his inheritance? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? So these are the three parallel things that he wants us to know. And he's, I said it's kind of sneaking up on us because it, as it goes beyond verse 20, you can see it really is Christ Jesus and his, exalt, his exalted position. That you would understand who he is and his exalted glory. Now, we're going to come back to this. Uh, we're going to come back to where he is in verse 21 in particular, because 
This has direct relevance to Paul's day and these Ephesians. Uh, I'm going to give you a hint about this, and that is the Ephesians in Acts 19 burned their magic books. Now, magic does not mean Las Vegas, you know, illusions. This, this means uh, black magic. It means sorcery. It means spells. It means calling on deities. Uh, and it means demon possessions. These are the kinds of things that magic was involved with in the ancient world. Um, Hecate, if you want to hear about Hecate, you read Macbeth by, uh, she, she appears in Macbeth by Shakespeare. Uh, and the three witches, uh, that's all Ephesus. That's all the ancient world. This is the stuff, the reality of their world. And when you strip away the uh, heavens and you look beyond what the, the veil, the covering, what divides us from heaven, if you want to strip that away, you read the book of Revelation and it opens up and there aren't this teeming mass of demons. There aren't all these various forces at uh, lining up to do us harm. There's just one. There's just one there. And it is the Son of God who purchased you with His blood. That's whom you see in heaven, exalted above any competing authority. That's who's there at the right hand of the Father. And he shows you that. He shows you his glory in a, in a visions, in Revelation. And here Paul refers us to that. That's what we're going to see as we uh, look ahead to that. But now, we've done the first two uh, last week. What is the hope to which he's called you? Uh, and the, the glorious riches of his inheritance uh, in the, among the saints. And now verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? We start there. It's his power. And I mentioned to you last week, that he basically uses four words for power. It's hard to see in this translation because they've combined a couple of words. But let me, let me separate them out. Uh, in verse 19, what is the uh, immeasurable greatness um, of his power, that's the first word, his power toward us who believe, according to the working, that's the second word, this can be rendered effectiveness, this is his, his effective uh, operation, how he brought it to pass. Uh, it, it can be, it, it's not just that he's working behind the scenes in this process, it's the effectiveness of what he did. He did something powerful that brought in an effect. And that's what, he's, that's what uh, Paul is saying here. The effectiveness uh, that God has accomplished. And then you have two more words, the strength of his might. Um, it's, it's, this is where they, uh, our translators here, uh, just say great might. But it really is two words. It's the strength of his might. It's just uh, piling up these words. So strength, effect, power, effectiveness, strength, and might. Four words for the power of God unleashed uh, in uh, Christ Jesus. 
And then you have this immeasurable greatness. I like to render this superabundant magnitude. This is this immeasurable, superabundant magnitude of His uh, power unleashed upon us. This is something stupendous. It's beyond all measurement and reckoning what He has done in Christ Jesus. This is something that is hard to wrap our hand around, except that it is done in the Messiah. Now, brothers and sisters, you're, you're thinking, well, it could have been a little more spectacular. Uh, he could have had the, you know, the earth stand still. Uh, there were some interesting celestial things at the crucifixion. But he could have, he could have done things that were even more spectacular. We could have had a volcano. You know, let's, let's have a volcano. Pretty spectacular. You all, some of you, okay, a few of you are around <laughs> at the time of St. Helens having his fun just north of us. My parents lived 30 miles away. Fortunately, they were upwind. And my sister, downwind 600 miles away, got a lot more ash than my parents did. Uh, we were nearby as well. We could see it. Uh, so this is, this is a pretty spectacular thing. Well, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about something like that. Uh, something where it is massive in power, but he did it in such a way that's very interesting. It's a, uh, it's a superabundant magnitude of his power, but it is not a destructive power. It's not this uncontrolled explosion. It's a power exerted with divine purpose behind it. Uh, and that's where our text is taking us. But you should understand, he is talking about it is a power like no other. And it's interesting he says this. You could have imagined him saying, I want you to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his mercy toward us. The immeasurable greatness of his kindness, of his compassion, of his goodness, of his justice. So, you know, some other feature of God uh, you could imagine him saying. But he says his power, he exerted his power toward us in Christ Jesus. This is really to be reckoned with. Um, and I want you to think about this in light of the passage from this morning. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then all the scary stuff that we Christians hear about that may afflict us for the name of Christ and how we have to hold fast. We're holding fast with the power of God upholding us. We hold fast with a Father who is all-powerful to keep us from the evil day. And in that evil day, if it comes upon us, we will stand by his good grace and powerful care. Just like he accomplished his good, his good work in Christ Jesus on the cross, he will take care of us. This is what Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to know that if it looks like God is not active in our life, that's just our dullness of sight. He wants the eyes of our hearts to be opened and illuminated to what God is doing and how much he has done for us already as the foundation for our certain knowledge that he still takes care of us.
And he can, he can accomplish his a holy will for us without any limit. Nothing will limit him. Nothing will hold back his hand. No one can stand there and hold back the will of God and say to him, what have you done? He will not stand for it. He is the almighty God and he will accomplish his good purpose for you. That you need to know. That you need to see with the eyes of your heart illuminated by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's praying for, for us. Now here, in verse 20, we get to two places now where he wants us to understand that power and the working of his great might, verse 20, that he effected, this is actually when it says the working of his great mind, which he worked, that's the ESV. Those are, those are two words that are related. The effectiveness which he effected, he brought into effect in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. This is, this is where Paul now gets to a, an act of power which is remarkable. Here now from Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God loosened the pangs of death. God overcame death. That's what he was doing on the cross. He was throwing down the throne of death and overcoming it and putting it to death and stamping it under his feet. He destroyed death. He put death to death. That's what happened on the cross. The power of God was exerted such that he broke the power of death over you. Oh, I, don't, I know. If the Lord does not come before I'm finished, or, or soon, we may die in this body. But death will not have the last word. Brothers and sisters, the sting of death has been broken, and the fangs of the serpent of death have been defanged, all the poison taken out. For us, death is a release to join the Lord and wait for that great day when we will be raised from the dead as well. It's guaranteed by the resurrection of our Savior. This is, what is, this is what happened on the cross. It was not some incidental exercise of God's power for one man. It was taking the head of his people, the new creation beginning. This is what Jesus said in that text I read this morning at the Lord's table. I will not drink of this until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus is saying, pretty soon I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. Why? The kingdom of God is the realm of resurrection. He was raised into the new creation. He's the firstborn of the new creation of which you are a part now. If you belong to Christ Jesus, the new creation is your inheritance. I want you to know, I'm praying for you. What is the hope to which he has called you? What is the glorious inheritance? And what is it? 
It's the new creation begun in Christ Jesus. That's, that's what he's praying, that we would understand this. Colossians 2, 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He triumphed over every competing authority in heaven and on earth that would block his purpose to raise us from the dead and give us this holy inheritance in Christ Jesus. This is what was happening on the cross. And Paul wants us to understand what God affected in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And not just that, but seated him at his right hand in the high heavenly places. That's because our Lord Jesus Christ defeated death and then now is exalted at the right hand of God so that his purpose will be brought into fulfillment. Everything he purposes will now be fulfilled. What Christ desires will be the Father's good pleasure to accomplish at the right hand of the Father. This is, this is what we're told. And uh, what is he doing now? He must rule until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, and the ultimate enemy that is going to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The ultimate enemy that is going to be destroyed is death. And that's in your resurrection. That's what Paul wants us to concentrate our attention upon. This is our hope. This is a Christian hope. This is the Christian faith. I believe in God the Father, and I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And our Savior will come at the end of days to judge the living and the dead. But that's when we will be raised to life everlasting. That's what Paul is, is telling us to fix our attention upon. He's praying that we'll understand these things, that this will occupy our lives so that we can be more effective here in this world. We can serve him without fear. Yeah, we have these uh, statements of our Lord. There will, be, there will be bad things happen to you in this world. That's not the ultimate story. That's not the last word. The last word is our Savior seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, I skipped, I skipped a phrase here, and you're saying to me, he must have just ignored this phrase. He skipped it. Oh, I saved it to the end. It's the best. Look at this phrase. I want you to know as the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, toward us who believe. I want you to know what is the verse 19. Toward us who believe. When he acted in Christ, he was acting toward us who believe. The strength and power and greatness and immeasurable magnitude of his overwhelming might was exercised toward us who believe. It was for us that our Savior went to the cross. And he has unleashed his power so that we now enjoy a foretaste of that great blessing. And that is by bringing us alive from the dead. Philippians 3 20 to 21. <laughs> but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like the glorious body of him 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He will appear on that last day. And now I want you to go back. I want you to go back where this is said in a mysterious way, but a way that cannot be misunderstood in Psalm 110. This is that great messianic psalm, and it has some mystery to it, but it's beautiful mystery. I usually just read verses 1 and 2, but I want you to read also verse 3. Psalm 110, 1, 2, and 3. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Your people will offer themselves freely to you in the day of your power. The day of our Lord's coming is the final day of his power. Until then, brothers and sisters, we dress ourselves in holy garments, not outwardly. We dress ourselves in the righteousness of the Lamb and walk in holiness before him, that we may be clothed for our Savior when he appears, when we will offer ourselves freely to him for eternity, because he's coming. He surely is coming for us. And we are going to be dressed in white robes, dipped in the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. The Lord be praised. You have given us marvelous things, O Lord. Your great strength is beyond our comprehension, but we will accept your word on faith. We see our Savior, and there is strength. Help us to understand, O Lord, all that you've given us, that we may glorify you, that we may freely offer ourselves to you in the day of your coming, that great day of power that wedding feast of the Lamb that we look forward to. Till that day, O Lord, uphold us with your great power. Grant that we may walk before you in uprightness as people whose hearts have been purified by the light of the gospel in Christ Jesus through your Holy Spirit, that we may bless you and thank you all of our days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.